Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the UK, are the 12 million people aged over 65 and 5.5 5 million aged over 75 by 2030... One in five of us will be 65 or more, and this ageing population is being mirrored around the world. Figures from the World Bank show that spending per capita on health peaked at $4,500 per person in 2004, way up from $1,700 in 2000. But despite this increased spending, we've stopped getting healthier. In the UK, life expectancy has stalled, and there's a big fear that one day a superbug will sweep through the population, and are we too reliant on the big pharmaceutical companies to solve that particular problem. You know, the survival of mankind, that sort of thing. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. So, uh, according to the World Health Organization, antibiotic resistance is rising to dangerously high levels in all parts of the world. New resistance mechanisms are emerging and spreading globally, threatening our ability to treat common infectious diseases. A growing list of infections, such as pneumonia, tuberculosis, blood poisoning, gonorrhea, and foodborne diseases are becoming harder and sometimes impossible to treat as antibiotics become less effective. Do you want some scary figures? Each year in the US, at least 2 million people become infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, according to the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, and 23,000 people die each year as a result of those infections in the United States. And it's estimated that as many as 10 million people could die annually from superbugs by 2050 Is nothing if nothing is done. So how do we fix that problem? Well, one way is to use antibiotics less. But Steve, I'm a drug company. I don't want people to buy less of my product unless I make it really expensive, in which case only the rich survive. It's a bit of a quandary, isn't it? Oh, that's one of the that's one of the great travesties of a great human invention. I mean, if you go back to the discovery of penicillin, uh, which was <laughs> you might Google and see when that actual date that was when Fleming actually made the accidental discovery of penicillin, but that meant that a whole range of of you know grotesque bacterial based diseases, which were part of human life in the uh, in the nineteenth century, were suddenly capable of being eliminated. And that was a brilliant discovery. But the trouble is... In 1928. We, 1928, thank you. Uh, what we've what we had since then is a period where a whole range of diseases, which were a common experience for virtually everybody, um, you know, uh, pneumonia probably being the most, uh, most virulent killer overall, but a whole range of bacterial diseases disappeared. Um, but... Anti and bacteria are living organisms. Living organisms evolve, and bacteria evolve at a ludicrous rate. Mm. One of the scary things about bacteria is oh, there's, there's a brilliant book that I recommend people take a look at. And this is the, I'm sorry to add to the depressing tone of the sort of things why I recommend on this podcast. But there's a book called The Coming Plague, uh, written by who the woman who was the New York Times health editor. I think back in the late 19, 1990s brilliantly researched book and what she explains is 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 how 
the, day, the fact that at some point this disease is going to come back, which is what obviously we're talking about that situation now. Yeah. But one thing she points out in that is when bacteria, uh, animals, life forms are not just competitive, the neoclassical vision of everybody you know, competing all the time. They also cooperate. And it turns out that bacteria passing each other in a, in a Petri dish or your stomach, for that matter, will randomly exchange strands of DNA with each other. Mm. Hey, try this one out. This is a bit like, you know. Uh, Let's bring down that human race, they say to each other as in, in their Petri dishes. Well, but the, yeah, one, one bacteria, a benign one, can evolve a resistance to a, um, to a antibiotic and then pass that resistance on hmm. to, a, to, a, to, a, to a malign one and bang, we get the situation where the disease is coming back and no bacteria, uh, no anti, antibacterial element will work against them. And this was something which has been accelerated. Uh, again, the, the, our ignorance about what we should have understood uh, allowed this to happen and also the, the obsession with the free market. Uh, a lot of the reason you can buy um, chicken so cheaply these days is they're shoved into you know, appalling growing conditions and they're fed a feed that includes antibacterial agents so you don't need to worry that they're in a bacterially dense environment. Of course, that's where a lot of the evolution of resistance has come from. Well, I think that's where a lot of these antibiotic companies, uh, companies making antibiotics, are getting their money from, isn't it? It's, it's uh, uh, to, to, to farming communities that are, yeah. are doing precisely that. But it's, the, it's, the, it's, the industrialised farming. The yeah. situation gets worse as well, doesn't it? Because uh, uh, the return on investment is is a lot lower than other drugs. So fewer pharmaceutical companies are researching new antibiotic strains to try and uh, counter this evolving problem. Uh, according to uh, Nature Biotechnology, never miss a copy. I always pick that up at the news agent. Uh, <laughs> only 12 antibiotics have been approved since t- uh, 2000. So in short, millions could die because saving them isn't providing a high enough return on investment for these pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, and this is the one of the areas where you simply this is where you cannot let the market rule this sort of stuff because the market will not produce uh, for the for they won't produce something that is what again I hate using conventional economic thought for this, but what's seen as an externality, something which does was did not affect you directly. Uh, you and I are not going to pay to uh, treat somebody who's got a communicable disease if we're not in the region where the disease is communicated. And uh, even even if we were, we might be reluctant to pay. So the actual individual demand for things is far lower than we need the social demand to be. And in that situation, the only only resolution is for that to be uh, done at the national level by the government. And you make this the, the government then funds this sort of research, but also has to control the use of back- antibacterial agents, which of course neither is happening. Yeah, well, it's interesting that we did give an awful lot of money, of course, to Africa during Live Aid, but only because Bob Geldof, uh, you know, packaged it nicely for us. So we all felt very concerned. The moment he stopped doing that, we st- we, we we stopped caring, didn't we? So it is true. We only care about our, what's on our doorstep. Mm. And, uh, and that just does not work when you have something like this, which is a, a communicable problem. That's one, you know, the, the hospitals becoming dangerous places to go because they're the place where the superbugs often mm. uh, evolve. Um, and can be transmitted. We're, we're causing it largely by the industrialization of agriculture, but we're adding to it by by over prescribing uh, antibiotics as well. And then you get when you get a disease, um, you know, when this turns up in a hospital, that's where you have to go and get treated because it can't be killed. That's where it stays. So it's curious, isn't it? Because a lot of the research uh, starts in the in in the public sector. 
and then gets commercialized. Is that where we go wrong? Because we need to, because uh, it's clear that this research needs to happen in the in the public sector. If all the hard work and all the hard work obviously is in that initial R and D, commercializing it is 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 uh, you know is is the is the relatively lower cost end of the operation. Um, why do we commercialize it? Why don't we just keep it all in the public sector if that is the case? Well, this is a large part of the vision behind the national health in, in the UK, mm. that this is something where the benefit of health is is not just for the person whose health has improved, but every, the whole society benefits out of this. Uh, for, for the most essential way of benefits is a communicable disease is stopped before it gets a, a runaway through the whole population. We seem to and have lost that ethos, though, don't we? We've lost somewhat. that ethos because, because we're successful for a while while we were ahead of the bacteria and the evolutionary process. The, you know, the antibacterials weren't anything that bacteria had to cope with uh, when they when when they were floating around in our gut back in the 19th century. Suddenly they turn up in, in 19 post 1928, and all of a sudden the main evolutionary pressure we're putting on bacteria is to survive antibacterials. Well, of course, given how fast they evolve, I mean bacteria. I don't know how I, I'm, I'll be, be, be talking through my hat here, but I've got a feeling a bacteria can split in something like one or two hours. Mm. So you can get 12 generations in a day. Uh, of the bacteria, and then what you've got is a survival pressure. The ones that ones that can process the antibacterial are the ones that survive. The ones that can't are the ones that die. But in a very very short time, they've done better than the scientists in evolving a, a reply to what the scientists actually have done in the first place. Right. So we, in other words, we're using, t- you know, it gets back to using too many antibiotics, doesn't it? If we had a health system that basically said, and this is, by the way, still an economics podcast, even though we're talking a lot about <laughs> health today, uh, which we clearly know less about than economics. But I mean, it's. I mean, it's, it's clearly the case that we, we are pumping ourselves full of too many medicines rather than perhaps looking at other means of prevention and using antibiotics more cautiously, which then gets back to the point, well, that's not good for the drug companies that are supplying the health service because they've got their profit motive. Yeah, and this is where there's one area where the profit motive gets in the way of the long-term survival of capitalism. Mm. Because if you get to the point where communicable diseases are as common as they were in the 19th century, uh, we're not going to see as much production coming out of the economy. But, so there was a real reason to control. One of my favourite little instances here, by the way, this is a total anecdote, but it's it's, it's I think it's useful. Um, the in the 19th century, oysters were a very popular dish, and the French had very strong regulations, controls on where oysters could be grown and testing and so on and so forth. The British knew this was just silly. Let the market work it out. Well, the market worked it out so that the Prince of Wales got poisoned by oysters, and uh, within within days of that poisoning happening, the oyster industry in the UK collapsed. Uh, so oysters are still a very effective. Uh, Cuisine in France, where they were controlled by the by the, the nasty government in the wonderful free free market deregulated system, because it almost killed the killed the, the monarch. That was the end of the industry. So regulations can help an industry survive rather than just killing it. And we should have had regulations on these antibiotics from day zero, but we haven't had it, and we've now got this problem of we've, we've actually spurred an enormous rate of evolution of our bacteria to be able to fight off what we've used to kill them. So we're going from a, 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 a post-bacterial world back into a bacterial world again. But, I mean, can, can you regulate it or does it does it just mean that we have to make a bold step and say, well, actually, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical sector is just by and large going to have to come into, into public hands, which sounds like a that. very extreme call, which uh, is just never going to happen, is it? Well, I mean, it, it may be. I think what's going to happen? It'll happen after we have some serious outbreak of a of a disease, which 
you know, there's a Dustin Hoffman style movie. I've forgotten the actual the, the movie Dustin Hoffman styled in. I think it may have been called um, Panic or something of that nature about uh, some disease evolving. It's been loads of them. Yeah. Uh, Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow was actually the carrier, so we've got to keep her out of the country. That'll, that'll keep us all safe. But she brought it back from Hong Kong to America and then bang, this huge plague. Uh, they finally found a cure for it. Uh, of course, it's an American movie. Um, but that's, that process, I think, is going to trigger us and say we simply have to make this sort of thing a, a national objective in the same sense that we had it for, for, you know, for getting to the moon way, way back. We need one now for, for production of um, you know, state-driven research into um, the non-profit, basically, driven research into uh, development of, of antibiotics and new ways of treating bacterial diseases because otherwise um, that Dustin that Dustin Hoffman at the centre I think will play out. Right. So just steer clear of Gwyneth Paltrow in Absolutely, the short term. Yeah. Uh, I've managed to avoid it all my life so far. Look, the, 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 let's take a different tack. I'm not the Northam choice. So it would have happily entertained her. Uh, but look, let's uh, let's look at uh, this in another tack. The cost of health care in the United States, is almost 17% of GDP. It's about $10,000 per person. The cost of health care in the UK, and that is, you know, public sector, private sector, the whole gamut. The cost of health care in the UK per person is about a third of what it is in the United States. And Australia is sort of midway between the two, about 7,500 per person. So huge discrepancies. And yet, ironically, life expectancy in the US is the least, 78.7 years. Uh, in the UK, it's almost 81 years. So, you know, the UK lives uh, more than two years longer for one third of the price. Uh, <laughs> no wonder we don't want Donald Trump to get his mitts on the NHS. Australia does pretty well, 82 and a half years. It's all those lycra-clad bods going along Manly Beach and could also be because they're not eating pork pies and scotch eggs like we are in the UK. But, I mean, that that you know, those numbers are very telling for the United States because it is largely a private system costing three times as much and not being as effective because people are dying younger. It yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the classic, the, the mar- the, all the arguments that may make normally of a marketplace don't apply in health. Um, if you have a, a disease or you have a, you know, a vital surgery and you go to talk to a surgeon about it, you have absolutely no bargaining power. You have a choice, pay money or die, uh, and then you're going to apply as much as you damn well can because you want to get the best surgeon for the for the process. So the marketing, the the, the market power is all on the on the side of the the seller of the service, not the not the buyer. Uh, and in that situation, you need market intervention. And so all the usual uh, neoclassical arguments can be actually used here to say health is one of those areas that should not be primarily for profit. It should be something which is provided at the at the um, state level because uh, diseases. Are something which don't respect whether whether you paid money or not for something. It, it's it's uh, a, 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 there's a public danger, a, a public health issue, which is the market itself can't direct it directly. And when you do get caught up in the marketplace, you have no bargaining power as a buyer of health. It's the seller who has all the control. So again, another reason to to step in and stop that being a hundred percent a private system. Mm. Does raise so many ethical questions, though, doesn't it? So let me give you an anecdote, and it's it's one that's you know very close to my heart because my father-in-law uh, died in a hospital in um, in Australia, and his basically his lungs were shot, and he was on a ventilator for a very long time. They tried to take him off the ventilator, and uh, he lasted about half a day before they had to stick him back on again. And then it was very clear they were just buying time. I think they just kept him going for as long as they felt was. 
appropriate for the family, knowing full well that at some point they were going to um, they were going to be turning the machine off. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, heartbreaking time. But clearly, he couldn't stay on the ventilator forever. And yet, ironically, his brother uh, was American and sold ventilator machines and the chances of that and he was saying well he sees no reason why he's going in america we would have just kept him on that ventilator for as long as we wanted to be you know because his his health cover would cover it now clearly that's a nonsense because nobody wins in that situation it's just a a waste of a resource i mean it's it's not a life it wasn't a life for my uh for my father-in-law i mean i'm I'm sure you know he's getting to the stage where he wanted to go he didn't want to be hooked up to a machine for the rest of his life Mm, so uh but so that but you know market economics the, the, the 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 whole but insurance model might say, well, yeah, you know, if you want, you know, you paid your insurance, keep going with this machine for as long as necessary, which is just a misallocation of resources, isn't it? Well, in that sense, yeah, because there's no quality of life in that situation. And part of the reason why we do continue is we don't have a, you know, a sensible program of, uh, of uh, you know, voluntary euthanasia, mm. um, which is the the other element of this, the, the, the way in which the, the market as an ideology gets caught up with religion at the same time. Yeah. Uh, It'd be funny if it wasn't tragic. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's a a minefield, all of this, isn't it? But it is becoming public health spending. It's a a large part of GDP. It's about 7% of GDP now in the UK. Back in 1955, it was 3% of GDP. But, of course, now treatments are more expensive because the, in part, obviously, because uh, it's coming out of the private sector, but also because we can do so much more. We have new ways of keeping people alive for longer, and in part because of that, but also generally the population is aging as well. Yeah, and therefore the older people are with larger proportions, therefore the costs are going to go up. Yeah. And so, and, you know, and so understandably, you know, how do you keep on paying? That That's an ever-rising bill. Where does it stop? Hmm. And ultimately, you've got to make those unpleasant decisions, which you had to make with your father-in-law. That uh, this this is no, we're not giving him any quality of life, and it's 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 and it's costing money as well, uh, which could be better spent in other areas of, of health where people have a potential for a quality of life coming out of the treatment rather than uh, becoming a you know a, a vegetable that's attached to a ventilator. So how do you fund health then? I guess that's the the, the, the nub of the question. Is it yeah. is it all public sector or I mean I, I'm in favor of a mixture of the two to some degree. I think the Australian system is one that I've been yeah. having lived in the American, lived in the Australian, lived in the British system. The Australian, I think, has got more flexibility while still providing that overall cover. So I think one thing you've got to take your hat off to, um, I think it was Bill Hayden was involved mainly in designing the Medicare scheme under under Whitlam. Uh, but that was a very well-designed scheme. You paid 85% of the cost of services. Uh, if, a, if a doctor was willing to... Uh, forego the 15%, you could do what they call bulk billing. Uh, there are other specialists as well outside that if you wanted to, you know, if, if you were willing to pay for a rapid provision of a service, you could do it. But generally speaking, you go to hospital and get the best possible uh, health care. A couple of my friends with cancer had that, uh, found themselves being dealt with by professors of medicine at, uh, at Sydney, Sydney, Hospi- uh, Sydney Hospital. Um, so there's a quality health care at the public level, a possibility for a premium on top of it, and that worked fairly effectively. The American, where it's all private, uh, the, you know, as you said, the cost is three times what it is in the UK, and the overall social outcome is lower. So so my bias is the, the the public provision, but with the with the with the percentage of that being also 
private and insurance-based, well, if you will. Well, I was shocked coming back to the UK about how badly the – and I haven't had yeah, – look, I've, I've experienced it because they, they did look after my mum who's uh, been in hospital lately and, and, you know, in hospitals they obviously do a tremendous job. My personal experience trying to get a bloody appointment uh, yeah. at my local doctor's, it's like three weeks – you know, it's, it's going to be three weeks out and you think, well, I, in three weeks' time I'll either be dead or better – uh, so really no point in making that appointment. Um, whereas my doctor, in uh, which I did always pay the, the excess for, I had the same doctor for 20 years or more, you know, 25 years, in fact, in, in Australia. He knew me really well. So he knew, he, you know, he knew my body better than I, I did. Um, he'd been placed. Man. He'd been exactly he'd been places no one else has. I'll tell you that, and uh, and and so it, so when I went to see him, you know, he'd be saying, "Oh, Phil, you put on weight. You do realise I'm going to have to, you know, put you on statin tablets or whatever. So you have got to get your weight down, so you don't have to take medication." So it was it was a, uh, you know, and he say, "So come back in six weeks, having lost some weight, and then we're, we're heading somewhere." And so it was actually a preventative approach more than anything as well and you know i had a, a, f- a few things where i needed more help than other times but i mean I, you just can't get that under this system where everything is free uh, and i would and there are no private doctors without you paying the full cost of a private doctor so i don't think they exist because it would just be prohibitively expensive so you're right yeah the combination the private and public combination put together by medicare in the first instance i think was was the best model i've seen for health uh certainly having experienced two or three different systems it's certainly outstandingly better uh both it's slightly more expensive than a complete public provision as you find in the uk it's far more flexible um without having the incredible overhead cost that you find in america which is why it pisses me off so much to see people forever chipping away and trying to take it across to the to the free market ideology of the Americans. Um, and we know that that's – but, of course, you go 100% public, as the, as the Brits have done, then because the sort of frustrations you're talking about make people – willing to say, well, it would be better if it was private. It's that public-private mix that I think Australia did very, very successfully. Uh, again, I think with Bill Hayden being the main architect of it under the Whitlam government. And given how successful it's been, you know how strongly – one thing Australians will fight to maintain is Medicare. Mm. I think it shows that it's an effective system, and I'd like to see that copied around the world. Well, yeah, but here in the UK, I mean, the, uh, the you know the belief is the the NHS is you know is the be all and end all, and the idea you should pay for anything uh, that the NHS should be free for everybody. So so it it's hard because I've had this conversation. It's hard to convince people you should pay to go and see the doctor. Yeah, uh, but a fraction of is. I mean, you know, some people have been told, hey, you can get on prescription free of charge if you're certain age. You can get uh, headache tablets that you can buy in the supermarket for fifty p. I mean, this. The, the, the sense of privilege that goes with the NHS is incredible and it yeah. has to be broken down a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, but at the end, the model would be to go with the Australian model rather yeah. than the American model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that, but the thing is that still doesn't address the whole issue about about rising uh, bacterial resistance to uh, yeah. to antibiotics, which get, which gets down to the whole cost that is applied. And that so uh, take your point, and we'll get back to that in just a second. But just look at the total budget, irrespective of whether you part pay or full pay or whatever, uh, whether the government pays in full or whether you pay you pay to to go towards it. The fact is costs are increasing for those reasons that we gave earlier. And it is a highly politicised area of spending. So under Tory governments, the growth in health spending is generally lower than under Labour governments. So uh, less than 2% since 2009. It was around 6% growth per year under Blair and uh, Gordon Brown, 4% under John Major, less than 3% under Thatcher. Um, So funding through taxes... Uh, means that it is a, a political 
consideration. So this, this is again comes back to the importance of the modern monetary theory uh, message that this, mm. this, the government doesn't have to tax to spend. Yeah. Uh, it should, in fact, be spending more than it gets back in, in taxation to create money in the economy, which is not uh, uh, individual debt-based money. And That uh, wouldn't and apply that, fully, though, would it, if you're having to buy in medicines using foreign currency from overseas? I mean, it's, it's great if you're making all of these it, medicines yeah, but the thing is that, that you would actually pay more of a domestic uh, pharmaceuticals industry, which would not be a bad thing. Yeah. So, again, this is one of the areas where if the state funded this properly, then you'd have uh, – that's one of the ways the sake of creating money without creating too many bureaucrats. Of course, the whole budget uh, privatization focus has meant you're putting more bureaucrats in hospitals than you are doctors and nurses and researchers. And um, so I, I would rather see – again, I see this is one of the areas where the um, – the um, household analogy is what the government should do has actually made us having a, a less effective society overall in the area that matters most, which is our health. So you mentioned that the Australian system was good. I wonder whether you agree with all of it, because, of course, part of the, the Australian system is that you are encouraged to take out private health cover so that if you earn a certain amount, you're not calling on uh, on, on Medicare uh, and, uh, you know, it, and you get taxed. You pay a premium uh, on your tax if you don't take out private health care. That's one of those. That's one of those uh, attempts to make it more of a market system that was thrown in by the Liberals, who are of course Australia's Conservative Party. So no, that's one part I'm not in favour of. I think the, again the old 85% rule, 85% of the cost was covered um, by the state. You paid the other 15 if you wanted immediate service. Uh, those sorts of rules were much more effective than what the Liberals stuffed around with it to try to force it into a more of a private than a public system. But what about uh, a private system that does seem to work? Well, not fully, obviously, because we've already said that in the US it's, it, it costs three times as much. But the model by which a health fund like Kaiser Permanente in, uh, in California uses, where they basically employ everybody. So you go, if you are a member of their health fund, uh, they'll tell you which doctor to go and see. That doctor works for Kaiser Permanente. They may then say, you need to go and see this specialist in a Kaiser Permanente hospital, and the specialist will be a Kaiser Permanente employee. If you need an operation, then the surgeon works for the health fund. I'm not quite sure how far it goes, but I think it goes almost to this extent. So from from that point of view, uh, all these specialists, first of all, aren't running their own businesses, so they don't need to understand how to issue invoices or uh, you know, or, 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 or manage to maintain a balance sheet because they are employed and get paid by the uh, by the health company. And so the focus then is that on them, first of all, them doing their job properly rather than running businesses like small uh, GP practices uh, in, in this country. Uh, and secondly, there's a, there's a focus on um, trying to reduce costs as well, you know, in, in a positive way. In that, you know, you go and see a, a specialist right now, they're not going to want to second guess what your doctor has said because he doesn't work for his company and therefore, uh, you know, increases his liability. So he goes and runs the same tests again and you get all of this duplication of effort. If it's all one company, and it could be, potentially could be, a, you know, given over to the private sector if it's just one company and the government pays for it, except for the fact that's a, uh, a monopoly. Uh, obviously better if it's all the, uh, uh, the public sector. But there's a, a lot to be said, isn't there, for, you know, all in together type approach rather than this series yeah, well, of small cottage industries that we've got. Yeah, and that's and that's again the whole mythology of the you know, free the free market that gets in the way of our clear thinking. Uh, this is the sort of stuff which is best done with a large scale. Uh, there's a system. There's such enormous economies to scale, as you're saying. 
and and you and there's also such external benefits beyond the individual that this is best done collectively. And what you're doing with a large corporation like that, the large corporation is behaving like a state towards its own employees. Um, we're saying let's do it at a, at a, at a higher level. That overall, the state does it, and you have a tiny margin which you can go and do yourself. Which again, the Australian system has balanced that nicely. The sort of 85% public, 15% private rule seems to be the right way to balance it. Right, but under that Australian system, we still are running a series of small businesses. You still have that that issue, don't you? That uh, you know, your lo- if there's a shortage of GPs in your area, it's because either there's not enough GPs with the business now to to run a company. Uh, or you're in an area where it's just not profitable enough for them to to be able to run, run a business. But then again, what you find is most of those now working out of medical centres. So I've seen that same evolution back in Australia. People who used to be individual doctors are now working as a medical centre, getting a very healthy salary, far better income than people earn for the NHS, I might add, uh, which is part of the problem with the NHS. They're not paid enough. But uh, you know, these these sort of chains of, of medical centres seem to be the way that the private system is evolving in response to those pressures out of the, the mixed public-private system that Australia has. Right. So there will be people listening to this going maybe not quite as far into this podcast as uh, as 27 minutes in, but there will be people saying, oh, there goes uh, Dobby and Keane again, talking about taking stuff out of the private hands and putting it into the into the public sector. Again, those people who want uh, small government, not big government, would be wholly against this idea. I mean, uh, is there any other way other than saying, yes, it's going to go back into public hands? I don't think there is because, again, the American system is a good example of what happens when you have to go private. There's a classic book on this public, Don't Get Sick in America. It's good advice. <laughs> well, just don't go in that's that case. Right. That, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the easier way, which, uh, of course, you know, is a decision made all that much easier by uh, their current president. Uh, I'll go when he's gone uh, and uh, I'll, I'll make sure I wear a face mask and I'll stay away from Gwyneth Paltrow while I'm there. They're the, they're the <laughs> tips for survival in the they United are. States. Good. Excellent. Well, I don't know if we've sorted anything out, but I mean, it is a big concern, isn't it? This antibiotic resistance uh, that we're seeing and, uh, you know, perhaps a bigger bigger issue than global warming in the short term. We might not worry about global warming because we'll be dead. Maybe that'll solve the global warming problem. It would. It would. Yeah. (laughs) Good talk, Steve. (laughs) Okay, mate. That was a bit of fun. Yeah, if you find talking about death and destruction fun. Now, look, next time, the role of gold. Most of the gold in the world is still locked in the vaults of central banks around the world. Why is that when currencies float freely, by and large, without the constraints of the gold supply? So what useful purpose does gold serve now, apart from making nice jewellery, of course? The role of gold. Next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.